if your movement starved, just move. Just, just get your daily movement calories up. Like, I don't care what it is, just do something. But so many people will say, the reason I can't get my movement calories up is because I hurt when I move. Let's then for you not worry about movement calories so much. You can play with tinkering around with your movement minerals and vitamins, right? Welcome to the Restore to Explore podcast, hosted by your soulmates from the Foot Collective. I'm Jim, and here at TFC, we're on a mission to empower humans to restore their natural health and function from the ground up so they can explore movement and life with freedom and confidence. So this week, we have a very special guest on the show, someone who's been a major influence on my perspective and my approach to movement personally, and has really inspired a lot of the philosophy and practices that we promote here at TFC. So Katie Bowman is a biomechanist and is the best-selling author of nine books, including Move Your DNA, Whole Body Barefoot, Grow Wild, and now her latest book, Rethink Your Position, which is actually due to launch tomorrow, Thursday, the 11th of May. Katie has been a leading voice in the movement movement for over a decade and has pioneered the concept of nutritious movement, which is the name of her education company and is just frankly an amazing analogy to help us frame how movement affects all aspects of our health on a deep level. In fact, one of our first episodes on this podcast was actually a whole episode dedicated to exploring the concept of movement nutrition and obviously draws on Katie's work heavily. And so that podcast would pair very well with this one. If you're keen to check that one out first or straight after this episode, it's all the way down in season one, episode three. But through this episode, we discuss the broader concept of biomechanics. We delve into the difference between posture and alignment and explore how the way we move can influence how we feel and contribute to our experience of pain and injury. We also delve into some key topics from Katie's new book to help you build more awareness around your own alignment, movement and mindset. There's obviously a huge amount that we didn't get to cover as the book goes into a really impressive amount of detail while still being really accessible to read and having read it back to front myself, I can very honestly highly recommend it. So I really enjoyed this conversation with Katie. I got a lot out of it myself and I know you will too. If you do find value in it, please let us know by leaving us a review on your podcast app and help us spread the message by sharing it out with your family and friends. Before we jump into this week's episode, we wanted to let you know about our TFC Explorer membership designed to get humans out of pain and help them find foot freedom. We've been listening to the stories of thousands of humans around the world for years and working hard behind the scenes to bring everything we've learned from the experiences of the collective to create our ultimate online training program that's already changing lives. Whether you have a specific foot condition, issues up the chain at your ankles, knees or hips, or just want to improve your overall movement health, the TFC Explorer membership is for you. The membership gives you access to an exclusive online community of like-minded humans on the same journey and the support of our experienced TFC health professionals, including our other Restore to Explore hosts, Nick, Jim, and Tom. Together, you'll complete a six-week program with daily lessons, specific routines for your condition, and movement challenges that will upgrade your health from the ground up help you build powerful, sustainable habits and lifelong mates from around the world. You'll also get to connect for live calls with our TFC pros and your fellow explorers to share your experiences and ask questions. If you join before July 2023, you'll get 50% off your membership. It's our way of saying thanks for helping pioneer this exciting new adventure. Head to thefootcollective.com forward slash explorer to learn more. The link is in the show notes. All right, Katie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, It's a pleasure. So uh, I do want to start at the risk of fanboying a little too hard uh, and making making you uncomfortable. Um, I should just mention that your work has been literally life-changing. I know life-changing sort of gets tossed around um, a fair bit lately, but I do mean it in the literal sense. Um, And I'll, I'll tell the story just for background. So I first came across you, I remember I was painting my mum and dad's house and I was listening to you on the Ben Greenfield podcast mm-hmm. um, and I just graduated from my physio degree the year before and I'd started my first job in a clinic that was quite manual therapy focused um, 
And then listening to that podcast, I remember having this sort of epiphany kind of moment as I was painting the walls and uh, just realized there was so much that I was missing from my, I guess, understanding and conceptualization around movement and um, how I worked with movement and how I worked with clients. And so I ordered, straight away ordered Move Your DNA. And then that pretty much sent me off on a whole new trajectory where I ended up quitting my job at the physio clinic. Uh, I started working in the movement therapy space and helping to run like functional movement programs for people with chronic back pain, um, which satisfied my needs for a while. But then I, I can't remember what, I think I found out about the Foot Collective and then that got me into reading Whole Body Barefoot. And then I remember having another major, I guess, epiphany moment. This is, I guess, about a year later and just about the deep importance of feet and footwear. And I started getting all of these movement therapy patients to take off their shoes when they were learning to squat and to hinge. And I saw the difference that that made. And that basically catalyzed my journey with the Foot Collective. So um, yeah, all of that to say, that's a very summarized version, but just to say that you are probably one of the biggest reasons that I'm on the path that I am on currently, which is a path that I really love. Um, so I wanted to start the podcast by saying a massive thank you for that. Well, thank you for sharing that. Like you, you do all this work and, and really my work is probably written most for myself who's gone through a similar path as you have just interested in human movement and finding holes of un in understandings and fleshing mm. that out and then just writing about it. Um, and you just never know how it's going to land, you know, and you have to sort of let that go. You write it for yourself and it's out there. So it is nice to get the feedback to, to know that that message has made it at least to you. Yeah, for sure. And, and uh, I know to many, many others. And it's funny, I was telling my partner that story this morning and she said, oh, that's a cool sort of full circle where you heard her on a podcast mm -hmm. and now she's you're on a podcast with her. And I think hopefully... <laughs> this um this podcast will inspire many other people as well but um yeah obviously your books have made a huge impact on me and i can easily say that they've been my top recommendations for anyone that asks about books on movement and that's whether they're a practitioner or just someone interested in learning about movement and foot health um i think your books seem to be pretty equally digestible by both they're very accessibly written i've found um, so I was very stoked, obviously, when we reached out to get you on the podcast and heard that you were working on a new book that's uh, coming out very shortly, Rethink Your Position. So super keen to explore that with you today. Uh, but I thought a good place to start would be um, just for people listening to have like a foundation for the conversation and just be exploring the, the concept of biomechanics, because obviously mm -hmm. you are a bio biomechanist um, and that's what your work is centered around. Um, and I know it's a deep topic, but I guess if we could get the, uh, yeah, your, uh, just your perspective on how you would define or describe biomechanics, um, how your approach or your understanding uh, of biomechanics has evolved throughout, I guess, your career and your time, um, and why people listening should care about biomechanics. Just real fast, all those things. Real fast. <laughs> yes, uh, I know that's a lot of things, but. Well, I guess to give it broader context, the study of human movement is called kinesiology, which maybe people are familiar with, but human movement's quite um, intricate. And so uh, exercise science or kinesiology is broken down into different categories of study. Exercise science, or usually exercise physiology, is one way of looking at it. You're looking at the physiological mechanisms, like people talk about aerobic and anaerobic, those types of training adaptations. That's in the wheelhouse of exercise physiology. There's sports psychology, just the idea of like how the mental game affects people's, um, not just uptake of sports, but even um, in public health exercise adherence. You know, why do people move? What are they not? What are the psychological factors at play? Um, there's pedagogy. So that would be physical education for children. And then there's biomechanics. And biomechanics is really looking at forces, the way um, physical forces, things like pressures, um, the different ways muscles contract, concentric, eccentric, you know, how all of those go on to affect the body and how we adapt. So it's a lot more levers. It's a lot more 
physics. You're not talking so much about what shows up in blood like you would in exercise physiology. It's just how are these hinges moving? Why do these hinges need to move? Um, why do all the muscles have different angles? What is form? You know, good form is really uh, falls into the wheelhouse of of biomechanics. And biomechanics, like I say, is not only about human movement. Living systems, biological systems, all have mechanical principles, mechanics that they adhere to. And so, biomechanics is a very a wide reaching field that looks at all animals, not just humans. Um, it looks at plant life. It looks at how do forces affect living systems. That's what I'm most interested in. But when I started, I started in a kinesiology department at university where I worked with people who are going to be physical therapists. A lot of physical therapists uh, would start in kinesiology. A lot of athletes might be um, also studying different types of uh, movement in the kinesiology department and biomechanics at that time, the paths for people in the biomechanics program were really um, limited. I would say that it was a sports focus. You were going to create athletic equipment. You were going to work with athletes, refining their form to be able to reduce injury or enhance performance. Um, you, I, biomechanists work in gear, athletic or um, therapeutic gear. So um, orthesis, you know, that people with different issues of their body might need if like you're missing a limb, um, wheelchairs, like anything, anytime there's gear that goes with human movement, a biomechanist is usually there bringing different considerations to how gear is created. A lot of tennis shoes companies have biomechanists looking at um, how materials end up being affected by the movement on top of them and likewise how materials affect movement um, or dance. You know, you could have um, any sort of injury that would show up in, I guess dance can also be put with athletics. You know, it's a type of different type mm -hmm. of performance. I was really interested in, I'm interested in both of those things. But it occurred to me when I was in graduate school that movement was like a lot broader than how it was usually boiled down in school, that all human movement was sports, exercise, or dance, that there was like hmm. nothing else that fell outside of these categories. And I've said this before on uh, numerous podcasts, but it was, it was said explicitly in textbooks, this is what human movement is. This is what human people who study movement study. And I was just thinking, you know, and I had a pretty good uh, cross-cultural experience by that time when I was in graduate school that I had been in a lot of places that were not North America and seen people doing movement that were neither one of those three things. So I was just always raising my hand like, well, what about this and what about that? And I started looking at um, just everyday ailments that that were plaguing everyday people, not athletes, not anything that was like a, a medial meniscus tear, you know, anything that was sort of associated with athletics or fitness, but just, I mean, really my focus, my first uh, big dive into it was low back pain and pregnancy. And then it became, I really specialized in pelvic floor disorder when I was in graduate school because it was so prevalent. And it didn't make sense to me sort of from, um, uh, like a more evolutionary point of view, why common physical occurrences like digestion or reproduction were uh, creating, causing so much uh, difficulty in the body. It seemed like the opposite. It seemed like these are the things that we probably would have down pretty pat thousands, eons, you know, of years into this. And so that was where I started to do my first everyday biomechanics, everyday anatomy. And that's really my voice still today. Um, I, I really do like performance and I like gear, but I think the masses on the globe uh, in this uh, unique new to humans, new to humanity sedentary experience is creating a lot of uh, physical situations in the body that we don't understand. And more importantly, that we're starting to accept as just normal phases of mm. the body because they're so almost ubiquitous, at least in our culture, um, that we don't necessarily see the, 
the set of behaviors that we hold similarly. So that's where I am, right, is, is breaking down mechanics for people to say, here's when you bend forward, here's what's happening, hoping, hoping that people would be interested in enough in how their own body works. And I find many people are, many people are into how cars work and how society works. And I, I think we're naturally curious, but there hasn't been a lot of talk of your body as being something that has these me mechanistic properties as well. And so I just like to inform people on here's some, here's a simple way to think about your body and troubleshooting it. And more importantly, some movements that you can do that would smooth this out or make this better, not unlike what you get from physiotherapy, but in a, in a more uh, preventive prehab versus rehab and, and also more holistic in the sense of our movement diets are probably a lot more broader than we're thinking. And if you could think, change the way you think about movement, you'll find that it's a lot easier for you to get more of in your body. So that's, that's where I am right now. Mm. So much good stuff in that. Um, and I think one of the, one of the thing that speaks to me is the concept of like everyday biomechanics, because going through physio, we did have um, at least a semester, I believe on biomechanics, probably a couple of semesters, um, but it was very much focused on, it felt, uh, or I guess at least my memory of it, is it very much focused on sort of sporting biomechanics and how to optimize, um, yeah, joint angles and leverage and muscle actions and just sort of in, into all of that, whereas it didn't feel that relevant to maybe your everyday person. Um, and even on a deeper level, I think when I read, you, when I read Move Your DNA, it opened me up to this other world of understanding of like sort of more cellular biomechanics, like what, mm -hmm. what does all this stuff actually mean on the cellular level? And, yeah. um, you know, the, how you framed it with, you know, our, our body is made up of trillions of cells, which then organize into tissues and organs and organ systems. And so, you know, the, the mechanical effects of the environment and of your own body's movement on the cell really shapes who you are literally and, and has these effects on your systemic health, not just your musculoskeletal health. And I think, you know, I was vaguely aware of the fact that movement was really good for you in lots of different ways, but I hadn't really had that framework or that sort of under understanding of how the mechanical forces really affect the cells and therefore our entire body. So um, I think that's like a really, really key perspective. And again, we don't necessarily have to delve into that whole topic of movement nutrition because that's covered by you in lots of other podcasts. And I've also done a podcast sort of, um, I guess, summarizing a lot of those things. Um, and I can just highly recommend people read Move Your DNA to get a, a deeper understanding of that. But um, something that's also interesting is lately, or especially over the last maybe five years, there's been more and more discussion in the physio world, which is obviously where I'm from around, you know, posture and alignment and biomechanics and how those things influence or maybe don't influence pain and injury. And mm -hmm. I know that's a pretty deep topic, um, but I'd, I'd interested just to get your perspective on what it means to, or what you think it means to move well or to have good posture and how, how those factors potentially contribute to our experience of pain. Well, pain's so tricky because I think that what's what's that that pain. I think previously there was a purely mechanistic understanding of pain. Like if you had pain, something was rubbing, something was chafing, something was torn. Like there was a physical issue. Mm. But but what has been found in different studies is the idea of well. You can have people with similar physical states, observable physical states on the tissue, on the tissue level. Things are torn, things are inflamed, and things are broken. And yet, two people will not interpret those same situations in the same way. Someone can have pain from that broken part someone can have no pain from that broken part and someone can have pain with no broken parts, right? These are, mm. these, this expands the model. Um, and so I do think that there has been a tendency with going 
pain isn't purely mechanical to want to sometimes throw out the baby with the bathwater. And it's like that, that the mechanics can never be a problem. And Mm. I think that that would be, um, it's a, it's a logical error, right? There it's, there are times when you can have pain, pain. I guess that the biggest takeaway from that is pain can come for a variety of reasons. And we have a personal thermostat's not the right word, but you know, there's a reaction to different situations and there's the way we feel about it that is more unique and not, not as simple as um, this part is what makes this pain. So that's just like a, a sort of a simple <laughs> review of the status right now on the on the on the on where pain sits. But but as far as good posture, or I don't really I don't usually use the term posture because I think posture can often be our tendency to want to find a single position to optimize versus shooting for that more robust movement practice. So I Mm -hmm. use the term alignment because I do think of posture as how something looks and alignment as how something works. Because when you're talking about good alignment for your car, for example, it's, it's not a parked car that you're talking about. It's a car Mm -hmm. that's advancing, right? The, when, when, um, things become problematic with alignment, it's when the car is moving. And that's not to say that there aren't optimal positions that distribute your body weight well. So if we are trying to figure out like, well, what is a good posture? It would be a posture and, and it would not be a single posture. It'd be a posture determined by what you were doing, right? Whether it's sitting or whether it's standing or whether it's riding a bike um, or whether it's walking, it's a posture or an alignment that distributes your the load created by your body well over the best parts to to bear that load. So our parts are diverse in shape. We have a lot of different parts to our body. And you could say a foot is one part, but if you study anatomy, you'll figure out that a foot is many parts all put together. Mm. So it's not enough that your weight is on your feet. It's where your weight is on your feet. And certainly you want your weight all over your feet because that's what's happening when you're walking. But we have come up with understandings that show, well, there's a, a way that your weight should pass through your foot, for example, when you're walking, right? We would want to see this phase, then this phase, then this phase. And when we don't see a particular phase, there tends to be a set of issues that can arise when you don't see that phase. Like that's why we can say there's um, a typical gait and atypical gait. And it's not that it's super, super exact, but there's a range that people want to fall in because outside of those ranges tend to be uh, increased risk of injury. You know, later on you're passing over a, a part of your foot or a tissue within your foot that doesn't carry the load as well as another part. And so if you can get some exercises or change your form to put some of the load on those other parts, then that posture or alignment that you're walking in or sitting in or or standing in makes that activity, I guess I would say more sustainable for you over time. In the moment, we're always making the best decision for us in the moment. It's usually the fastest and the one that requires the least amount of thought. But when we're talking about problems with movement, it's on the long game that we're talking about. Sometimes when you're talking about athletics, it's the shorter game. You didn't mm-hmm. perform as well in, in, this, in this bout, in this game, during this throw. But for everyday people, we're talking about the longer game and problematic posture and alignment is that it's affecting the longer game. The fact that your, your tissues and the movements that you wanna do with them aren't going to last as long as you would like them. Or you have one part of your body that wears out faster than another part of your body. And that's also what we're trying to avoid, right? We're trying to avoid all of us sort of aging as a single unit in the way that you would want uh, your car to, in general, distribute the use well over all four wheels so that you don't have one prematurely wear down and you need to get that 
part replaced. It's the same. It's the same thing with your car. Only we regenerate. Cars don't. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really great point and something that I picked up from you because in the movement therapy programs that we were running, there was the general theme of um, good movements and bad movements um, and, you know, moving poorly or moving well. And in one sense, you know, obviously at the time I could really see where that perspective was coming from. But as, mm-hmm. as I sort of delved more into your work and um, took different courses on pain science and, and how these things sort of make sense, I started to form this picture of, well, it's, it's not so much like one example is, you know, hinging at the hips with a neutral spine was seen as a good movement in this paradigm mm-hmm. and um, sort of uh, flexing at the spine um, especially under load, it was seen as a bad movement um, and something that was likely to contribute to injury. And I think something that I, yeah, like I said, I picked up from you and um, this general paradigm is that it's more about like the, the options of movement that you have and your ability to switch between those options depending on the context. And so, yeah. you know, the the flexion of the spine isn't so much an issue except when you don't have the ability to hinge at the spine and keep a neutral spine, which means you're just always using the flexion uh, spine strategy, which means that area could tend to get overloaded, um, especially if you sort of were wanting to do a much more intense physical task. And so I think that concept of having more movement options and choosing different alignments based on the context was really key for me uh, for my understanding of biomechanics and sort of what good movement or good posture is and I I love that you said that posture is like a static snapshot and even in that previous job in the physio clinic we worked a lot with trying to get people sitting and standing posture right and I think the concept of alignment being more related to bodies in motion is really key because I I realized I was doing all of these um, postural corrections with someone sitting or standing statically, but I wasn't actually helping them move <laughs> necessarily. I wasn't, I wasn't changing their movement behaviors. I was just changing how they were holding themselves in these postures. And so that was, yeah, it's all a very, um, I think very important. And also, like you said, the pendulum has kind of swung away from mechanics being um, a contributor to pain. Mm-hmm. I, I think most people operate these days if they're evidence-based um, on the biopsychosocial model, which I think is, is so many is so important that you do also look at psychological and social factors um, in, in the relation to pain. But um, yeah, I think it's important not to forget that there's the bio there as well and that biomechanics plays a role and that if you are if you don't have an option to move a certain body part because you've been, um, you know, to use your terminology, you've been effectively casting it, say, for example, in a shoe or um, in a chair, then other body parts are going to have to compensate and take on that extra load, which then makes them much more likely to be overloaded. So, um, yeah, I think... I think it's I think it's good to for people to have that framework and that understanding of um, how these things matter, but also that having good posture while you're still and being yeah while you're being still isn't necessarily good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we definitely have a tendency to when we find a new piece of information, like in pain or in so many other things, when it's been neglected for so long it becomes, we make the same mistake of making it the total thing. Oh, well then this is what the actual thing is. It's Mm. like, just getting another piece. We need to integrate. We're not really great at integrating. We're good at going, it's either this one. Oh, it's this one then. It's like, well, it just, you, you find a new tissue, like same thing with fascia when fascia was like, oh, there's fascia. There's this whole other tissue besides just muscle. Then it becomes the everything instead of saying, Mm. well, this is the phase of it being the everything and the solution. And like, let's just integrate the model. Now let's put all the pieces together. And then with, with posture, like I can definitely see, like I come from an allopathic background myself and I still spend a lot of time in that space. And I think the challenge often has more to do with this, the way, uh, sorry, the model that I'm talking about is the, the patient at the clinic getting 
you know, do these with your shoulders when you're standing, you know, adjust your pelvis tilt like this when you're sitting, which is definitely part of, I think, uh, is you can, you can help someone with that information. It's just that the model seems to be affecting the understanding. Like if someone is only going to be with you for 12, 20 minute sessions and you are supposed to leave them with the most effective set of exercises or information, you're making a judgment call. But what happens is we take the limitation of the distribution model and mistake that for our understanding of how it works rather than saying something like, well, movement's quite complex. Ideally, I would like to see you move 75 additional minutes per day. And but also I notice that your pelvic tilt is sort of exacerbating this particular issue. You could decompress, you could remove the load off your tailbone, you can, you know, uh, not raise your hand with this particular muscle over and over again if you change this angle here a little bit. But these things are not really about how you hold yourself statically. They're about reaching for your coffee in the morning. They're about getting up and down out of a chair, as you so beautifully learned, applies to the squat of an athlete, but not for someone getting up and down out of a chair, which is what they're going to do much more often throughout the day. Same principles, same degrees, same everything. We're just not, we're not moving beyond the therapeutic distribution model. We're not allowing mm. the actual science of it to be understood or communicated. We're like regulating ourselves to assume someone will give you 15 minutes. What do you, what, what's their tweet? What's their short bit? And then when the bigger picture doesn't look like that short bit, everyone's sort of stunned. It's like a, a big picture, a textbook's never going to look like a tweet. You're never going to get a full textbook of information to fit hmm. inside a tweet. So if you set yourself up to learn by tweet, this is going to blow your mind when you get a textbook, right? And the same goes for the patient. We're sort of setting patients up to, to learn about themselves in a series of short amounts, which is why I write books that are accessible by a layperson. I think that if they knew more, they would be like, oh, this makes more sense. Even why my therapist told me that now I can, why my physical therapist has me do this. Now I can expand it. I can do more. I can take care of myself a little bit better. Mm. I think what you're saying there, it just made me think of obviously one of your metaphors or like the main metaphor of your work is the concept of movement being like nutrition. And it's, it's been one of my favorite metaphors to refer to throughout my whole career. Um, and, you know, we, we all inherently understand the need for quality, quantity, variety of food, like nutrients from food. Um, and I think in some sense, the, you know, alignment, uh, I'm going to say, quote unquote, corrections or alignment changes or teaching people how their different parts work together is almost um, is almost kind of like teaching them how to cook. And that's like a really important skill to know how to cook um, to make your food healthy and, and nutritious and um, delicious. But maybe without the actually actually integrating those skills into uh, movements throughout your daily life and, and increasing the amount of movement that you're doing through your daily life. It's like cooking a meal, really nice meal, but then not eating it um, as, a, as an analogy. So um, yeah, I think people, I think building those skills of, you know, controlling certain body parts, moving different body parts, loading different body parts and coordinating them together is really important, but then uh, as you talk about, it's not enough just to do those um, corrective exercises or postural corrections unless you're actually going out and getting some more of that whole food nutrition, or at least that's the, the plan to build towards getting that whole food nutrition, uh, or whole food movement nutrition. Yeah, I think it's both. I think for some people, if you're movement starved, I mean, that's we're talking movement starved people when we're like, just mm. move. Just, just get your daily moving calories up. Like, I don't care what it is, just do something. But so many people will say, the reason I can't get my movement calories up is because I hurt when I move. Mm. And it's, and it's not only complex, uh, 
issues around their pain. You know, it's there's lots of different types of pain and it's just simply like my right side can't bear weight um, or I get physically uncomfortable when I start to get my heart rate up or whatever it is. Right. So then the point is like, OK, let's let's then for you not worry about movement calories so much. You can play with tinkering around with your movement minerals and vitamins, right? Does your arm rotate in and out? Let's let's try some of these more refined movements, which would be equal to a micronutrient. Besides, instead of like playing with a, a macronutrient, which would be more like a mode of exercise. Mm. Let's see how your body, and that's what this more this recent book is about, is tinkering around with how are your levers actually moving when you go to consume your general movement calories? Because one, if if the way you feel when you move little whinges here or there are why you're not moving more, great. Let's make that your um, focus to get started. Or if you're someone who gets a lot of movement calories, you're very active, maybe you're even an athlete, but you can tell that the way you're moving isn't fully nourishing your body, you can still play with those same micronutrients, mm. right? So it's it, it, the book is really... It's just about here's how these parts work. Here's how these parts articulate. Here's here's how they work in a broader movement <clears throat> context, you know, and you start to put some of the pieces together to figure out what you want to cook for dinner, you know, or, yeah. or at least what you want to buy, what groceries you want to buy and put in the fridge to be able to cook for dinner later on. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a perfect, I guess, segue into rethink your position um, because yeah, I've, I've been getting through that this week and really loved it and, and loved how you structured it all, just starting at the head and moving down the body and just there's, you go into a lot of great detail and there's some really good diagrams in there. Um, like you say at the start of the book, you know, they're not like the fanciest diagrams, but they get the point <laughs> across really well. Um, yeah. And they're just, they're effective. Um, but I figured it might be good just for us to pretty much do the same thing now. Obviously, we can't go into the same level of detail as you do in the book, but I thought it'd be good just to touch on maybe one or two points from each area to give people a taste of what's in the book and maybe some practical takeaways. So we may as well start at the head and neck, which is where you start in the book. Um, mm -hmm. And the concept of like tech neck or text neck is something probably a lot of people are aware of. Um, but I figured, yeah, if you just want to talk about that as a, as a concept and why it's important. Well, it's just, you know, people deal with uh, a lot of issues that relate to the function of the parts around this area. I mean, I do think that there's a lot of focus on the curves of the spine. So tech neck, you know, you've got your upper body slumped forward, but then you also have your uh, neck extended. So you've got hyper, uh, hyper flexion of the upper upper back and hyperextension of the cervical spine. So you deepen both curves. And as I try to point out, like there, for that reason alone, learning how to use your tech in a different shape uh, is beneficial. Um, and I do like to say, you know, we call it tech neck now, but it, it's just like, I've just been saying this a lot. It's like a rebrand, like we've rebranded it. That forward position of the upper, like we used to call it a dowager hump. Like that was mm. a shape of, of people who were much older when their, when their spine had lost uh, density and mobility, you would get this shape. Well, now we're practicing it in our twenties and our thirties, right? We are the first generation. The kids are the first generation to start practicing, spending their time in the position that you used to end up in after 80 years, right? So what is that gonna look mm. like mechanically when you when you load during your most formative years in this particular shape? And there's been, you know, there's different studies looking at some of these things, um, but time's going to tell. But I also put up a bit about swallowing, you know, like swallowing and you're talking about, it's not just the curves of your neck, you have processes in your body that pass through this area like, swallowing and breathing and just to to see to your earlier question why is alignment so important is because many systems of your body depend on a certain alignment like if you were horizontal 
most of the day, your systems would not work. They depend on vertical positioning. And you can have mm-hmm. illnesses where, or um, illnesses or disability where you end up horizontal, but people will need to move you regularly to make it not as much of a problem. That's an extreme example, but even these smaller bends that we put into our system, they affect the physiology of the processes that are operating within them. Because your body is like a big container and your body is creating forces as, as, as it moves and out as it is positioned statically that go in and then push on other things like the tubes in your body that are carrying blood or carrying air mm. or carrying uh, lymph or carrying uh, digestion, the processes of digestion, right? So you are also, not only are you creating forces when you're moving like with your arms and legs, that movement is creating other forces inside in your thoracic cavity and your abdominal cavity and your pelvic cavity. And that's that's really why alignment matters so much. So I start with tech neck because it's like, hey, you're doing this thing probably for hours a day that you didn't realize. And here's a simple adjustment that here's how you can slide your head up in this particular way. And here's how that pulls out excessive curve in the upper neck and the upper back all at the same time, one movement. Mm. So that's... yeah. That's technique. I think something you say in the book, which is really important, is that, you know, it's not the position itself is bad. And this comes back to what we were talking before. It's just that the dosage now is really high because of all of our tech. Um, And if you're really defaulting to that position all the time because of the tech, um, one, that position is likely to get sort of overloaded, overused, and you may struggle to get into other positions over time because your body parts yeah. stiffen in that in that position. Um, yeah, there's no bad positions. There's no bad positions. Yeah. Like it's just so hard because then you want to list. Well, what should I do? It's like your mm. body goes into all these shapes for a reason. the The problem that's unique to us is our environment, and it's like I try to even say it's not even the tech. That's the problem. It's that we don't do anything else but the tech now. The mm. tech is is your whole life now. And it, for children where it's become more and more central, it's that you are not doing anything else with your body. Like you could handle a dose of your body folded forward to look at something if you spend some hours doing something else, but we don't, right? We're not spending mm. any time doing really anything else. And that's that is that's the issue that we have to deal with. Yeah, that's the deeper issue for sure. And um, there's a, um, for time, we won't go into it, but for everyone listening um, as a little plug, because we obviously talk a lot about feet and footwear and uh, orthotics. And in the head and neck section, Katie talks about the pillows being an orthotic. So if you want to really mess yourself up in the, or just like really uh, get deep on that concept, but you talk about how the pillow can support you in a position that your body couldn't support itself. So I was, I think I um, read you, uh, yeah, read in Move Your DNA, I believe, about you getting rid of your pillow and even um, I think scaling back or even completely eliminating mattresses. And I haven't taken mm-hmm. that step yet, partly because I sleep um, with my partner who's maybe not there as either, but I do actually find the a very small pillow is good for me. I can't handle big cushy pillows. Um, and also mm-hmm. when I go out camping, um, and sleep on a very thin mattress, I really like that. It's, I think people, it's good for people to conceptualize, um, interacting with the ground, you know, with our audience, they're quite aware of the feet and the importance of interacting with the ground with minimal support, or at least transitioning towards that. But maybe people, haven't necessarily thought about the rest of the body and how that interacts with the ground, even when we're sleeping. Exactly. I mean, you've invested, everyone listening, I'm sure has invested so much in understanding, wow, my foot is a bit able to make the adjustments to all the texture underneath. And the more I block that out, the less these parts move, your whole body is meant to be on the ground. You know, Mm. if we're going to use the word meant to be like your, your whole body has been moving over the ground, not just your feet, but all of your parts. And so if you've transitioned your feet, just know that you have an entire body that can go through that transitioning to minimal, let's just say, uh, 
interference between your body and the ground, whether it's a mm. couch or a chair or a rug, it doesn't matter. All these things are just cushion and, and it takes, it can take a long time to get there, but it can take no time at all to get closer. So you're just doing the same thing. You're just slowly removing the cushioning from beneath you, all parts of you until all these parts articulate a little bit better and more comfortably over the earth. Mm. Yeah. And that, and I think people shy away from it because of the discomfort, which is understandable. We, we've, sure. um, we've, you know, talked a lot about uh, the value of discomfort and I guess why we naturally avoid it or why we can naturally avoid it. But it, if you can um, gradually expose yourself to that discomfort over time, then it actually starts, your whole body becomes more comfortable in a lot more various uh, environments sure. and contexts. Yeah. And at minimum, it gives you more empathy for people who are like, I could never wear minimal shoes. Like I need all this yeah. to feel good. Like, yeah, and you realize true. like we're all where we are. And, 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 yeah. And, yeah. And I'm the same. And like that can make you relax and feel better in other ways, hopefully. That's true. Um, cool. So moving down to the rib cage is where you go next. So mm -hmm. um, this rib thrust position you talk about is something that uh, I think a lot of people are missing because, and, and you talk about this in the book where a lot of people are focusing on the tilt of the pelvis, which obviously is an important thing, but they maybe miss the fact that their ribs are actually contributing to um, an excessive pelvic tilt or an anterior pelvic tilt. Um, so I thought it'd just be interesting to yeah, talk about rib thrust and then what uh, like a practical tip you can give to someone who, to see if they're rib thrusting and how to correct it. Yeah, well, there's two things in the book that I think every PT should understand. And that is one of them, rib mm. thrust. And the takeaway is, is more this. The takeaway is uh, hyperlordosis, which would be excessive curve to the lower back, is not only created by pelvic tilt. Mm. It can also be created by the position of the rib cage. Or we can talk about... Uh, any curve to the lower spine, any curve to lordosis, high or low, can be affected by pelvic tilt and rib cage tilt, because we've overly we've hinged our understanding of lordosis to be a pelvic influenced curve, and so. That's what that section is about is you need to really be aware of how the rib cage changes the, the depth of the curve or someone who has hyper um, or hypolordosis for that matter. You need to uh, adjust, you need to address both the pelvis and the rib cage, whether you're a therapist or yourself. It's this understanding mm -hmm. of like, I think a lot of people are like, oh, I have um, excessive anterior pelvic tilt, a forward tip of the pelvis. And I'm like, well... I can see based on measuring your pelvis that you don't, your pelvis is sitting in neutral. What you're seeing is your rib cage has sheared or slid forward. So you definitely have lordosis, but you do not hyperlordosis. You do not have an anterior tilt. Um, and so it's breaking those apart. So mm. if you're listening, you can think about, it's a little challenging to find the position of your rib cage via audio, but if you put your hand on your sternum, you can think about your sternum more or less being, sternum is where, you know, if you're wearing a necklace, it falls. It's where all the ribs come around and attach like this, this vertical plate. It should be more or less vertical. If you stand, like imagine lifting your chest up to the best posture and you put your hand on your chest, you'll see that your hand is like at an angle. And you want your hand to be more vertical. And when you do that, you're, when you bring it vertical, you are dropping the front of the rib cage down. And also it's like a, it's why I taught head ramp first, because the head ramp hmm. motion where you bring the head back, it's three planes of motion, right? Your head rounds forward, rotates forward, it backs up and it lifts up. Same for your rib cage. When you drop your rib cage, many people need to not only drop their <laughs> ribs, they they drop it, they slide it back, and it ends up lifting up in the back, decompressing mm. the lumbar spine at the same time. So practical is you get yourself against a wall, put your shoulders against the wall, 
and then see if you can also put your mid back against the wall at the same time. That would be like where your bra strap or heart rate monitor goes across your middle back. Can you keep your mid back against the wall and the back of your head against the wall at the same time? And that will give you a sense of how much hyperkyphosis you might have in the upper spine. That's so technical, I know, for audio, but, but anyway. <laughs> I know, I, I realize that, but I'll just second your, the concept that every PT and, and every person should really be aware of this because uh, it is something that gets missed so much and it was something that I, whether we didn't get taught it or I just, I missed it in my physio degree um, and it's something that I would uh, habitually do as well as a rib thrust and I think a lot of people from what I can tell, a lot of people habitually do it because they think that this shoulders uh, up and back kind of posture is good posture sure. and that's what they've been told. And that actually, if you, if you, unless you're aware of it, that will tend to result in the rib thrust unless you're able to then bring those ribs down with your shoulders back. Um, so that's what the, the value of the wall does. And that, that can't, to lead into shoulders and arms and hands, um, the ability to go overhead with your, with your hands and your shoulders is really important. And you, you sort of stress that in the book. And I, one of the main exercises I've given to people with shoulder or neck pain throughout my time is again, up in, up against that wall in that same position, mm-hmm. uh, addressing that rib thrust, keeping those ribs down and then going overhead, because that's the other thing that yeah. I think a lot of people do is even if they can keep the ribs down, uh, in when they're just standing, as soon as they go overhead because of their um, probably restricted shoulder range, then their ribs will tend to thrust there. And that ended up, uh, for me, for myself, doing that ended up, um, and I think I still kind of deal with it a bit, but I have, tend to have a quite tight and restricted and, and stiff thoracic spine, which mm-hmm. then affects mobility in my shoulders. It, that was a major contributor to um, some shoulder pain that I had and some knee pain. And as soon as I addressed that properly, then those two things got a lot better. But it's still, you know, it's still something that I practice regularly and work on regularly. Yeah, mechanics, we call it coupled. <laughs> like mm. uh, engineer, like things are overly coupled. You know, your arm doesn't, your ribcage should not have to go everywhere your arm goes. Like mm. those two things are they're too dependent on each other. And I, I talked about this briefly in Move Your DNA. Like imagine you're sitting on the computer all day long or, or even doing labor with your arms out in front of you. And then you go and you do a tennis serve afterwards and you, you know, reach your arm up overhead to, to hit your tennis ball. The, the spine having to come up with, because the arm did, like that's when you're not actually using your shoulder joint. You're using your lumbar spine in lieu of that motion and we want to be aware of these places where we're overly coupled and we are overly coupled between our humerus our upper arm bone and our rib cage and we're overly coupled between coupled between the thigh and the pelvis and Mm. and the interesting thing about those two couples is when those two areas are coupled the lower back becomes the main hinge for the entire body meaning Mm. everything you do with your leg now moves your pelvis hinging on your lower spine and everything you do with your arms actually moves your rib cage and ends up hinging on the on the lumbar spine. And that's why we've got such problems in this particular area is we're using the the lower spine in lieu of these really large shoulder and hip joints. We're using our lumbar spine as like as if it was the only hinge in the body. And so mm. doing mobility work and learning how to slow down your motions and see like, oh, my arm stopped moving there. The rest of that was my rib cage. That's really helpful because in doing everyday life, you can fire certain muscles in your trunk and you can stretch certain muscles and you can start not moving so much from your lower back and start moving from your shoulders and your hip joints better. Yeah. And that that pretty much perfectly summarizes the, the next two points, spine and pelvis, yeah. hips, legs and knees, uh, which is handy because um, there's, there's so much that we could go through in those. But <laughs> if, if people's takeaway there was, if my hips don't move because I'm sitting all the time in one position, if they don't move into extension, then something else has to compensate for that. And that's probably going to be the lower back. And likewise yeah. with the shoulders, if, they, if I never practice going overhead um, or if I very rarely go overhead, then they'll get stiff into that movement and then more movement's going to have to come from my spine. And then, but that, 
the spine isn't necessarily made to do those movements all the time, whereas the shoulders and the hips are. Um, so that's, that's a really good sort of summary of, of those two areas. Um, the feet and ankles, obviously that's, uh, my big interest, but in relation to how they affect everything else. Um, and we have talked about that almost ad infinitum on the podcast before, but something that, uh, I quite liked, um, that is sort of different to what we usually talk about is this concept of a calf heart. Um, so I'd love you to talk about that. That's another, you know, okay. I said there was two things. There is three things. And that is the other (laughs) one, I think. And I was wondering, is there anything that the foot collective would pick up from the foot chapter, but the calf hearts (laughs) is it. And yes, it is. Um, it is the idea that, and again, this is really like, you should get, if you ever read movie or DNA, that's a good starter book. And then you can add mm. rethink your position your because i go into the cardiovascular system has its own chapter in movie or dna like we think of the heart as the driving force of blood but really your musculoskeletal system is a tremendous supporter and facilitator of the movement of blood in fact your heart can kind of push blood around the main arteries, but it's the muscles working that draws it from the arteries into the arterioles and into the capillaries. So if you want to feed your body completely, you have to move all these parts because that's what ends up. I always say like your blood cells, your red blood cells are like cars, like, and they're driving around on a main highway, but they need to get into the driveway of an individual house or cell and Mm. and it's in in the capillaries that that happens so so to sort of like say you know your heart if we've just put so much upon the heart conceptually calf hearts is about we've also put so much on the heart um literally mechanically it's easier for your blood to get down towards your feet it's harder for it to come up Your body has um, such tremendous anatomy, though, that the action of you moving your feet and ankles is part of, you know, the action of you contracting and relaxing your calf muscles is what drives the blood back up so that the heart doesn't have to pump it uphill. Well, Mm. our hearts spend most of the time upon unmoving feet and legs, right? Like a radical bizarre experience as far as the ancestry of the heart is concerned, right? So the heart is sitting here and and we've become and, and we have extremely poor heart health. And that's a main problem for most people listening. Your heart health is like the main big big thing that people will have to deal with in their lifetime. But I don't think people really understand, like you had said earlier, we know movement's good for us, but why? Well, one, it de-stresses the heart when your calves are busy contracting and relaxing and pumping the blood back up. So you can think of your ankle motion as an extension of your cardiovascular system. And I'm not talking about like when you exercise the fact that you're conditioning your heart. I'm talking about all the time that your heart is pumping blood down to your legs, which is all of the time. It needs the support of your legs to bring it back up. Look at how often you're supporting your heart. And if it seems really low, get up and start moving around. But more specifically, make sure your calf muscles aren't overly stiff because the stiffer they are, the less of that pumping action they're going to be able to do, the less they're going to support the heart. So, you know, that's one of the nice things about not only shoes, like I think of a problem, one of the issues with positive heeled shoes is it restricts the range of motion of your of your um, ankles, right? So, and thus your calves. But wearing minimal shoes is not enough. You have to move in them and you have mm. to move over terrain that points your feet uphill, right? If you want to use that full range of motion. So that's why shoes are one part of it, but terrain and movement habits over the terrain are also equally important to the shoe that you choose to buy, right? That's 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 the full trilogy. It's the full trilogy of uh, healthy feet is to look at mm. the terrain, make sure you're getting that slope in and that you're using your calves more frequently. 
Yeah. And you say in the book, the the heart comes with calf hearts for a reason. And you you pretty much just said it there. It's it's evolutionarily unprecedented that like we evolved in the conditions that we were moving consistently every day and walking a lot and running and doing all these movements. So our heart didn't need to evolve with the ability to pump blood to and from the legs it's because the no. legs were always pumping, helping to pump the blood back up. And I think that's a, an often overlooked um, part of foot and ankle function is that, and it just it's just cool that it's like you can really directly correlate ankle and foot function with heart health. Um, it's, it's not sort of abstract. It's not like, oh yeah, like you said, movement is good for us. It's like, you know, this is how your ankle... Um, mobility affects your calf function and how your calf function affects your the stress on your heart and so on so um yeah i think that was a really a cool tidbit that people um should be aware of and i guess to wrap it up i really liked that you finished well, can oh, I, just, sorry, I just want to i want to finish that one little piece because i think it's so important is that we already know the relationship between the calf and ankle motion and the heart because if you've ever had surgery or you're flowing on a plane, like the thing that's most dangerous for people mm. is lack of calf movement because of cardiovascular issues. Like this is not even just the use of calf hearts and maybe tying it together is new, but it's like, it's already out there. All these pieces are out there, but they're not necessarily Definitely. synthesized in an easy way where you'd be like, oh, okay, I'm going to go move my calf hearts right now. So I try to use silly names for things to help make the stuff that we already sort of kind of know and have read, but make it applicable and understandable. So, okay, I'm done. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. <laughs> and it's, you know, it wasn't uh, a new concept for me either. Like I always knew about that calf pump action and how it affects the circulation. But it, yeah, I think you're right. The framing of it is a calf heart I'd never heard before. And I just, yeah. it just really clicked. I was like, oh, my calves are basically hearts. <laughs> And yeah. as soon as I read it, I started doing calf raises on the spot while I was reading it. It's just, you know, it's it, having that framing can help drive behaviors, I think. Yeah. Well, and the framing is that the calf pump exercise, we're doing that because we're not walking around. Like, like right, we're getting, up, we're getting focused on the exercise because we know more about exercises than like locomotion because locomotion isn't part of our modern life, but exercises are. So the more you can just go, we're missing our steps. We're not taking our calves out and our hearts out for a good walk. And just, I think it, some people will do calf raises and some people will be like, oh, that's motivating to me to take a walk if I thought that it was yeah. actually making my heart better right now. So it's just about having more portals. Definitely. And that kind of leads into the last chapter of the book. I know we're going to wrap up um, very shortly, but um, you talk about aligning your mind and your brain and how, um, you know, your mental state and your mindset can either they, they can both be barriers to movement like if you you know if you don't have the awareness or you don't have certain framings uh, about how movement affects your body and how you're in control of movement then that can really affect your ability to partake in movement um but also on the you know on the opposite scale the the way you move and how much you move can really influence your mindset and your mental state as well um, and you know your self-perception and your confidence and all of these things that uh, are a lot go a lot deeper than just your physical health as well. Yeah, I mean, I didn't want to leave off the brain and the mind. Like I thought they should be on the part list because mm. again, people we They're tend parts. to separate them. We don't think about them as parts, but mm. they are in fact parts. And so it was. It's actually my favorite. Is it my favorite chapter? It's like a kid. You don't really have a favorite I, kid, but I, I think it was my favorite chapter. I, I, it was, it was just the perfect way to wrap it up. Yeah, it was fresh. You know what I mean? Like I, I spend so much time, like, oh, here's this lever over here and the pelvis, and it's so anatomical. <laughs> so to be able to just say, like, your brain is also a part, like your quadriceps that need movement, and when we're having these problems with our brain, we have to think about the brain has never been in a in a situation the human brain has never been in such a sedentary environment it is struggling and it can be struggling for many reasons there are many things that are different about modern life it's not to say that movement is the ultimate solution but movement is absolutely like your heart uh, sorry movement is a, it's an movement is an input that your brain like your heart 
has always experienced that its structure mm. has been in relationship with throughout the entire timeline of human history. And, and we go radically changing it and not really wanting to look at that relationship. And the same goes for the mind, which is maybe something different than the brain. I don't really know. But I can say that we we would call a brain issue and like a mental health issue different. Um, we categorize them differently, but they're in the same chapter because they're all sort of related. Um, that's more about our, the way we feel like emotionally. Like, I guess I can just wrap it up by saying, we weren't taught the signs of movement hunger. We don't talk about movement as a need in that way. Um, we talk about food, especially if you've had kids, you're sort of like, oh, the kid's tired, the kid is hungry, they're fussy, they just they just need a nap, they just need water, they just need food. And if you've been, I would say, on the ancestral health journey long enough, then you're probably more versed well-versed in understanding like, oh, there's these things that I'm needing, but I don't think we're there with movement. I think that we're really quick to categorize things as not relating to the giant elephant in the room, which is we barely move our bodies. Like it's mm. just so hard to really, to look at that. And so um, that chapter is all about just thinking about considering it and thinking about um, feeding yourself movement in like smaller doses. And then also inertia, how to use inertia, which is our resistance to change to help you out, right? Instead, like it's the habit, it's, it's hard to get started, but also once you get started, it's hard to not keep going. So use mm. inertia to your benefit. Like that's the big point of that chapter. Yeah. Well, that's the perfect place to wrap it up. And um, I'm, yeah, like I said, I'm very grateful for you coming on and for spending the time. I know you've got to head off now. Um, but I will just say to people, the Rethink Your Position book is coming out um, in May, which is um, probably when you're listening to this podcast. Um, so you should definitely head to, is the best place for people to find it your website, um, Nutritious Movement? Wherever they get books, it's going to be, you know, yep. be in your okay. local bookstore. It'll be online. Um, you can get it Sweet. from my website, Nutritious Movement, wherever. Cool. Um, and also, obviously, just you've got your own podcast and you've got um, the your Instagram. So, yeah, where's the best place for people to, well, what are those and where can people go to find more of your stuff? You can find everything at nutritiousmovement.com. You can, if you're a social media person, you can look that way. If you like podcasts, you can find Move Your DNA. So go to the Nutritious Movement. You'll That's a good launching off point for everything. Perfect. All right. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on, Katie. And um, right. I'll yeah, hopefully chat to you again sometime in the future. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks for listening to the Restore to Explore podcast. To stay up to date with all things TFC, join our brand new free community. Inside, you'll find a growing library of education, training, and resources to help you resolve common conditions, restore natural function, and explore your body's potential with a community that's there to support you along the way. To join, just head to thefootcollective.com or you'll find the link in our show notes.